0: The LRB podcast is sponsored by Art and Ideas, a podcast series featuring J. Paul Getty Trust President Jim Cuno in conversation with artists, writers, curators and scholars. In the latest episode, Ankar Mulstein, author of The Pen and the Brush, How Passion for Art Shaped 19th Century French Novels, discusses the symbiotic relationship between authors and artists in 19th century France. Search Getty Art and Ideas on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or other podcast sources.
1: Welcome to the London Review of Books podcast. I'm Rosemary Hill, a contributing editor at the London Review, and I'm very pleased and rather excited to be talking to Carmen Khalil. Carmen was born in Melbourne. She was educated at a convent school as she came to England in 1960 at a moment when British culture was about to get a shot in the arm from several remarkable Australians. Carmen was followed two years later by Clive James and then by Germaine Greer. She worked in publishing for a while and then founded her own house, Virago, in 1973 for books which she said celebrated women and women's lives. Virago brought back into print writers who should never have gone out of print, including Stevie Smith and Vera Britton, and most memorably for me because she was such a complete revelation, Elizabeth Taylor and had also brought out new writers, notably Angela Carter and Margaret Atwood. After Virago, Carmen worked at Chateau. In 2007, she published the much-acclaimed Bad Faith, a biographical study of a couple who were Nazi sympathisers in Vichy France, which she was prompted to embark on by the suicide of their daughter, who had been Carmen's therapist. She has described herself as not a good feminist, but she has waged constant war on poltroonish men, as a result of which her term as a judge of the International Booker Prize did not go smoothly. She's a keen anti-Brexit campaigner, a founder member of the group 48% and rising, and as of this year, a dame of the British Empire. Carmen, I wanted to talk to you first of all about when you first came to London in the semi-mythical 1960s. What was it like?
2: Well, I will never forget my first impressions of coming here, never ever. First of all, my mother had expended a lot of money on buying me what she considered to be a winter coat. And when I came here, I've never been so cold in my life. I was freezing. The coat was completely useless. Secondly, this is that sounds strange, but the war wasn't really over. Um, Park Lane wasn't Park Lane as it is now. It had a long, long, long sort of sign down it by some sort of engineering works was still going on, repairing from the, the, the Second World War. Thirdly, I'd never, ever seen so many small people with bad teeth, <laughs> terrible teeth. Yes. I'd noticed it so much. I thought, goodness me, um, because I hadn't eaten, eaten proper food, as we obviously had for many moons. I just thought it was a terribly sad place, and it was such a disappointment because, you see, I'd bought myself up, or my mother had bought me up, on Dickens and Jane Austen, and I thought it would be so much bigger. When I read Pride and Prejudice*, I thought it was the most enormous world, you know. It was tiny. That's my first impression.
1: You weren't tempted to just turn around and go back?
2: No, but I wish I had.
1: <laughs> we'll come to that later. What I wanted to ask you about now is the thing about women in the six, because this conversation that we're having now began... What was when, it like for women? What was it like for women? I wrote a piece for the London Review about the letters of Ida Nettleship, who was Augustus John's first mm. wife which turned into an essay about Bohemia and why Bohemia isn't very, really a very good place for women and that the freedoms that it seems to offer don't really work in their favour. And I wondered if there was not something similar in the 1960s.
2: Well, absolutely. The 1960s, the early part of it, were just the same as the 1950s for women, I think, inasmuch as if you had a career that was utterly exceptional... Everything to do with the womb dominated your life, particularly if you were sexually active, because it was before the um, before the pill. That's the first thing. And if you had an abortion, there was a place if, if you had to have one. There was only this place in Half Moon Street, um, just next to the Curzon Cinema, where it is now. Other or, or somebody in made a Vale who used a sort of um, what do you call those things? Coat hanger, that sort of yeah. thing. Um, So that that was a very dominant thing, the whole business of your womb. As far as work was concerned, secretary, 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 secretary was what was available.
1: Now, I was very interested to discover that you got a job in publishing, not by answering an advertisement for a job, but by advertising yourself. I know. As someone who wanted to work in publishing. And it worked. It worked. And I, I, but my mother
2: always brought me, she said, you must not learn shorthand. So I, but I was a very good typist. So I just put Australian BA typing, once job in publishing, and I got three offers. One was from, um, the one I took was from Hutchinson, sponsored book department, which is where I started. And one was, I think, from Batsford. And I've completely forgotten the third. Mm. They weren't anything pre- prestigious, really.
1: Why did you hit on publishing?
2: I've been having a long affair with a publisher. Uh, and that influenced me, though he'd published a very different sort of book to my thought. But my father was a bibliophile. I was raised on books, absolutely. I, I, and it sounds very... but I I know I was formidably really well-read because of that, by English standards, you know. My, my father died in 1947, so the library stopped there, really, um, because there wasn't any money to buy them after he'd stopped providing. But... Um, Everything up to Shaw, Wells, Meredith, everything was there. And I read them all.
1: You said that founding Virago, if you hadn't done it, somebody else would because it was such a kind of sitting duck. But when did you become aware that there were all these women writers who were not? Well,
2: Virago wasn't really set up to do the classics. The classics was my idea um, after about the first year because one of the things about joining any political group or wanting to change the world, which is basically what I've wanted to do all my life. The world's just simply not good enough. And at the moment, it's a testament to how right I was. Um, but anyway, you always have to shack up with people who drive you mad. Uh, and having been raised in a convent, I found joining groups very, very difficult. So that's the sense in which I think I was a bad feminist. But um, not that I was a bad feminist, but that joining a group of them all telling me what to think. It was something I simply couldn't do and didn't do. But those early feminists were far too serious. They were very, very serious, many of them. And I wanted to celebrate. I like fun as well and to celebrate uh, what women do. And one of my very earliest friends was Angela Carter. And we laughed a lot. We laughed one heck of a lot. And I just knew that all my years of being on that earth which at that time was 30 or so that women have always laughed they have a sense of irony i mean the the tradition of female writing is definitely ironic you just have to mention jane austen if you just isolate that aspect of her writing there's there was i knew there was a great tradition of women writers of that help elizabeth taylor is such a perfect example
1: she is a most wonderful example of um, her novel um, yeah. Angel, which was, the, I mean, the first one, I have to say that I got a friend, a man friend, actually, said there's this book called Mrs. Palfrey at the Claremont. You must read it. So I did. Then I read Angel. And of course, the interesting thing about one of the interesting things about Angel is that it's a novel by a woman about a woman novelist. Who breaks through all the conventions to become a novelist, and she's a simply terrible novelist and a ghastly person. So the irony is wonderful, it is, and isn't it's they? done in such precise detail. Every um, the, 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 the horrible fringing on the mantelpiece in the sitting room over the shop where she grows up, dreaming of going to Osborne and meeting Queen Victoria. It's the most wonderful book, but it has that sort of um, yes mirroring of. Uh, very self conscious well conscious irony about what is absolutely about,
2: but there's many many others, so that was sort of in a sense my first um wish to celebrate women 's writing novels and also to illuminate women 's history by them and also the a tradition that was their own it doesn't mean to say it's the the best tradition, but it is definitely uh something that is part of women's lives in English literature anyway.
1: Well I think yes, I mean Mrs. Palfrey at the Claremont and um Antonia White's Frost in May. Yes. That was those were both they are both novels that illuminate one a little girl abandoned by her father in a convent, the other a woman of a certain age coming to terms with a rather disappointing life huge pockets in terms of the proportion of human experience into which no light really had been shone
2: yes. until
1: then. Yes. And certainly with Mrs. Paul for the at Claremont, I, I have got a sense of great pennies dropping. Yes. You know, suddenly these faces which had been, lives which had been rather opaque, opened up. I think
2: I was very lucky in my parents as far as that list is concerned because, you see, my mother read voraciously too and she read... Um, much more women's fiction than my father left in his library. He didn't have leave any. But she'd read Willa Cather, for example, mm. my published. Mm. I loved Willa Cather. I don't remember her reading some of the other ones on the list. So certainly she's the only human being alive who I knew had read all of Dorothy Richardson's Pilgrimage, which is four volumes. So some of it came from my past, but my, the impetus came for my sense, that these writers represented a tradition which women should have available to them, which they should celebrate. And the other thing was, of course, I simply couldn't stand the books they kept teaching in schools. And actually, that, if anybody asked me what I think my greatest achievement was, it's that I have changed or did change the school curriculum. They do study women writers now, and they never did. Apart from Jane Austen. Jane Austen wasn't really included, you know, at Oxford and Cambridge. She was a bit... I mean, she wasn't as, no, well, she was a bit, yeah. Yeah. And the Brontes, yes, and George Eliot. But there's a whole shaft of people surrounding them on which they supported themselves. They'd all read many of them.
1: Yes, but it's not surely just about um, giving women their own history. As I say, the person who made, said, I must read Mrs. Paul-Fritley was a man friend. And oh, I a lot think of men. that yeah. opening exactly so opening up women's history to men was just as is much just fun. as
2: important oh absolutely no question and i i mean i I don't want to drone on about Elizabeth Taylor, but it has to be said that she's definitely the favorite of every single male reader of virago's ever had is elizabeth taylor's the because I suppose she's such a she's such a genius
1: she's such a genius and it's it's the kind of writing where you it's limpid. You think, I can't work out how you've just done this.
2: I know. And you've got to remember, at the same time, she was standing outside High Wickham Tube Station selling The Communist Worker. <laughs> I didn't I- say
1: that. <laughs> she was a
2: communist. I simply adore that.
1: <laughs> and come back to Angela Carter and the Living Writers that you published. Yes. I mean, Angela Carter has been seen very much as a kind of epitome of um, 70s and 80s feminism. Yes, so,
2: but she wasn't, you know. N- no,
1: well, that's she what was I'm so, She really. was
2: politically as incorrect as I am, and and more so actually, because she was much more um, sexually, um, what's the word for ribald than I ever was. I was working too hard to have great fantasies about werewolves and various adventures of that kind. She had an extraordinary inventive imagination. There's been a very good biography of her this year. Um, But the one, and the biographer um, said at the time there will be other biographies. And the one thing that was missing from this biography is how voracious she was also about politics. Mm. She was extraordinarily violent um, about politics and much more of a socialist than I was. I was much more of a radical. She was a real socialist.
1: Well, the point at which, of course, the violence and the ribaldry came together was in that long essay that Virago published, The Sardian Woman, which I think got you into a lot of trouble with everybody from both sides.
2: Yes. I've sort of vaguely forgotten about it and I can't say it really worried me at the time because I knew it was a highly original and extraordinary piece of work. But you're right. She was saying that Sard taught women and men about the true meaning of se- of sexuality and women's sexuality ignoring all the um pornographic aspects of his activities
1: i i think she i don't think she does ignore them she's what she says is that he put pornography at the service of women that's now right. whether you think that's a good thing or not is another question but i thought that um, well, it's what you were saying about her in real life. I never met her. But the courage with which she just wades into this subject. And not only does she wade in, but when she takes um, Sade to task about things, she said, well, you know, he did this. He's lost his nerve here. This is what he should be doing. And you think very few people would discuss him in those terms.
2: Absolutely.
1: Uh, so I thought, and I know that she wanted then for Virago to publish philosophy in the boudoir. And yes. Verago kind of balked. <laughs> did they? You don't, I, don't I think remember. you were not there by then. Oh, no. Or you would have been there.
2: I published The, Sard- the Sardian Woman yes, very you much. Did.
1: But this was a bit later. Was it? Yes.
2: Oh, I didn't know about that.
1: Well, I don't know how far she... I just know that she did say that she had hoped to do this. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. I had the... Um, Maybe she was just teasing you. Yes.
2: No, no, <laughs> I had the synopsis of her last book before she died, which was about Adela. Jane Eyre's pupil in... Oh, yes. Yes. But I didn't know about the philosophy in the Boudoir, and I don't think I've ever come across the, the possibility that she might have done it.
1: It's very interesting that she wanted to write Adela's story because one of the one of the ways in which I think the Sardian woman is very interesting and is uh, very admirable about Angela Carter, where she says that, you know, the belief in any kind of universality of um, female experience is a clever lie because... While it seems to promise solidarity and support, yeah. it actually is another kind of constraint. And she was very open about the fact that she was very impatient with novelists like Jean Rhys, um, who sort of sat around at cafe tables, feeling sorry for themselves, sort of getting out there. And Wide Sargasso Sea is, I think, Jean Reese's best book. Which is the first Mrs. Rochester's story? So I'm very interested to know oh, what Angela Carter so, was going to do right. by yeah. taking another character. Oh, I know. From Jane she Mair. might have been attacking Jean Reese. Uh, well, she would certainly she would at certainly, at her certainly angle given a, a slap Reece. across the
2: cheek in yes. that. Yeah. yeah, Well, she never lived to write it. It's very. But sad. also, you've got to remember that Adela's mother was a prostitute, and I
1: think Angela would have loved doing that. <laughs> well, in fact, Jean Reese's um, version of the first Mrs. Rochester is pretty raunchy. Um and I think well it's as close to raunchy as Jean Reese ever got. But no, I'm just um tantalised as we all are. I mean Angela Carter died far too young. Yes, she did. There was so she much did. more that she could have done mm. would have done, um, without doubt. So after Virago Chateau. Yes. And did you enjoy that?
2: I did very much. Yes, I loved that. But there were things about it, of course, that were ghastly which was that publishing was changing in the years I ran Chateau. When I took it over or, or, took, or became its managing director and publisher, um, we had a staff of 24, our own offices, everything. And as the years went by, we were we were sold to this one and that one. We got bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger until we were finally owned by Bertelsmann. And I think Chateau is now sort of three editorial people and all the other services are, are shared. So living through that was a pain in the neck, actually. That was the, the negative aspect. and But I loved the books and I loved the writers and I loved Chateau, yeah, but I didn't love big corporations. And my best friend would would say I was utterly hopeless at dealing with big corporations, you know, but really seriously not suited. Um. And as the years have gone by, you know, and I approach um, my latter years, to put it mildly, I think that what I really was was that funny word which they don't ever give women, but I was an entrepreneur. I was If I start myself off and do it myself and bully everybody to do it with me, then I can achieve something. But I can't work for accountants.
1: But that's, I mean, that is certainly how I would have seen you, You do see you as somebody very enterprising and therefore very courageous with nerves of steel. But you've said of yourself that you're always frightened.
2: Yes, I was, Mm, always. But I think if you've had a wretched childhood, you um, firm up in ways that people who haven't had a wretched childhood know nothing about.
1: Why was your childhood wretched?
2: Basically the convent and the loss of my father. I've, I've read a lot about people whose father dies when they're very young or their mother, and it, it's just an, any explanation of it is a testament to the fact that we're all different. In my case and in my family, it was utterly shuttered the family. Um, my mother couldn't cope, you know. That was one thing. And then we were all sent away to these boarding schools, and in my case it was a convent, now, what is interesting about that is that you couldn't say the nuns were evil, but there's for years now there's been um, revelations about sexual abuse, of, particularly of boys in the Catholic Church. But I always said, and I will say it again, that we were emotionally abused in the convent, emotionally abused and, um, what's the other word for it, not physically abused, um, intellectually abused, you—you you were told terrible, terribly frightening mistruths about how the life, the world is organised. That you know, if you fought, if you fucked your, you'd die and go to hell and all that stuff. Not just go to hell, but you—um—everything you could you did could be an occasion of sin for somebody else. You see, so the whole impetus of being alive on this planet was put upon you, doing exactly what you were told and nothing that you actually wanted to do. It was a terribly imprisoning uh, philosophy to put to place upon little girls, I think. But once again, I know many girls who were in convent with me who turned out perfectly normal, but I did not.
1: <laughs> Why was it a mistake to come to England then? Why do you keep saying that?
2: I think the country's become a tremendous disappointment to me. Oh, It's a very bad time to talk to me about it, isn't it, because of Brexit. But it isn't just Brexit. Um, Well, Brexit was the product of something. It was the product of of George Osborne's austerity. And I don't think there's anything like enough uh, um, coverage of that. What I find interesting about that particular remark of mine is this. Because I live in North Kensington, I knew what austerity was doing to people at the bottom of the pile in this country. They were the ones who paid the price for the banking disasters that we had, for too much dependence on the city as the source of the wealth of the country. And therefore, anything the city wants or banks want, they had to have. So we had to support Northern Rock and we had to privatise the railways. We had to do everything that would make money for those that have money. But those at the bottom of the pile in this country, we've done almost nothing for. They pay lip service to it and that goes through education, national health for them, but most of all, housing, particularly around here. And whether that's me being idealistic or not, I simply hate living with gross inequality like that. I hate it mainly because I want to live well myself. Without feeling
1: guilty about it. Without being,
2: no, without always agonising about this and that and terrible stories that I heard around here Um, well before Grenfell burst into flames. They were privatising everything and for example, I've had, um, I suppose you'd call her a cleaner, but she's not my cleaner. She's, my, she's been with me for 40 years. And she lives in, in an estate in North Kensington. It's called the Warrington Estate. And the council, she was in tears one day. The council had let the block in the Warrington Estate next to hers get decayed and collapse. They then pulled it down and built flats for sale non-affordable flats. And they shipped the inhabitants of those council houses to outside Manchester, outside Liverpool and Luton. And Delphina was in tears that this is what was going to happen to her. She was next to them and she's next on the list and they, they wouldn't come and repair her flat. And I was right, you know, getting ready to take furious action on her behalf when Grenfell blew up. Now that's just symptomatic of what goes on around here. And I don't think, though, here is very much different to the rest of Britain, really. I think the the gulf between rich and poor is unacceptable to moi. Mm.
1: To be devil's advocate for a minute. Yes, do. Surely um, it's a lot better for women than it was when you came in 1960.
2: That's a very good point. It is. No question. Hmm. I don't think I've got anything more to say about that because women aren't the only people in the world.
1: No, but they're... Uh, it is. Cent. That's a
2: great improvement. Do you think we owe that to, to to Britain? I don't. I think we owe it to individuals who fought very hard for women.
1: Yes. But we owe it to
2: the society. I see what you might be
1: saying. Well, mm. I think if you're just going to say what's it like if you were transported from the moment you arrived shivering in your inadequate coat to here, um, mm. you'd notice a lot of social inequality and i should say that where we're sitting we can actually see um the wreck of granfall tower um from your sitting room um but you might also find that a lot of doors were open to you that were closed in that's a
2: very good point i think i take a negative view of life at the moment i definitely do i think um brexit sort of broke my heart because i'm a great you know i love europe absolutely love well i obviously am some countries I like better than others, but... and then the second thing is Grenfell. i sitting in amidst Grenfell. I just, I just sort of I give up. Actually, I just give up. I'm in a give up mode.
1: Well, I find that very difficult to believe. So after publishing, you yes. started writing. Yes. Mm. And the first book, um, which was in 2007, um, Bad Faith. Can you just say a bit about how that came about? Because it was a most extraordinary beginning. It was, wasn't it? Well, what happened was I was
2: doing the ironing and um, the BBC, God bless it, this is just another thing, if they get rid of the BBC, I'm definitely leaving. Um, I was doing the ironing and the BBC showed this French film called Le Chagrin à la Pitié. And this man came on to shake the hands on this, this film, the very famous film, he came up, this man came up to shake the hand of um, Himmler, I think it was. Was it Himmler or was it Goebbels? I've forgotten now. And because um, there were subtitles, they gave his name. And I knew that my therapist, who had committed suicide in 1970, was the daughter of a Frenchman, and her name was Anne D'Arquier. But when, I, when she was buried in Golders Green, she had the name D'Arquier de Pelpoix on her label you know they label them at Golders Green. green outside why has she got this and of course i never forgot that then i saw his name oh that's extraordinary so i began researching and i discovered that was her father he was the com- commissioner for jewish affairs in Petain's government and though he was an idiot he was he oversaw the the jewish affairs section which was responsible for the deportation of 70,000 Jews to Auschwitz. No, most of them didn't go to Auschwitz. Well, many of them went to Auschwitz. Many of them went to um, Sobibor and other places. So I wrote the story of her, and um, I wrote the story of him and Vichy France. But I also wrote the story of her idiotic mother, because the reason I was given Anne Darkie as a therapist is that she was half Australian, her mother Myrtle came from Tasmania, so I incorporated all the things I knew about into this this story. It was a story really, but it was history with an enormous amount of original research, which I was helped to do by this very remarkable young Frenchwoman. We got into the bowels of the police files that nobody had much had been into. But it was it was about justice again, you see that book.
1: Yes. Well, you said that all your books are the same and that they start from terrible suffering.
2: Yes. Um, And then my my demand and my insistence on justice for Sam.
1: Well, that is the writer's prerogative, isn't it? To put right what's wrong. Is it? Well, it's what you can do in fiction and in a way you can do it in fact. And the the way that you wrote um, Bad Faith was as a narrative. Yes, I mean, Obviously, this is all historically researched, but you, you cast it as a narrative. Yes,
2: I write, I like stories.
1: Everybody does.
2: Dickens, my hero.
1: Everybody likes stories. Mm. It doesn't matter what you're writing. Yeah. Um, you've got to get people at the very beginning to mentally put their thumb in their mouth, and then they'll come with you.
2: Absolutely. Listen. Absolutely.
1: I'm aware that we haven't talked very much about Ida Nettleship and Augustus John and Bohemianism, which is where we kind of came in. Now, why did we drop that? Well, I think we diverted ourselves.
2: No, the womb comes into it again there, doesn't it? I mean, because you asked me about the 60s, and I said I think women's lives really revolved around their wombs, preventing things growing in the the wombs, really, if they were sexually active, and not getting jobs of any interest to man or beast.
1: And do you think that that kind of sexual freak, because Ida Nettleship, who married Augustus Don, had five children in five years and died of postpurple fever at 30... Do you think that the the freedom, it was the same in the 60s, that that the freedom for both sexes to do what you liked, but the consequences being so very unequal meant that it wasn't really very liberating?
2: Absolutely not. And from that point of view, that remark you've just made makes you understand why people, often people when asked what was the most important invention of the 20th century, they will say the pill. Mm. Because can you see the difference for Ida Nettleship who died? I mean... She wanted to fornicate with Augustus, particularly as he had another wife as well. I mean, she yes. was fighting Dorelia. And she was hypnotized, wasn't she, by that myth of the Bohemian life? I'm a free woman with my own talents, but you know, he's here I am here, here I am with a genius, don't you? Well
1: she kept I thought she said one of the things she says that's, that's very good. Is having been um, drawn to this world of artists living in studios, going to Paris, all of this kind of thing. Um, One of the letters that she wrote was she's trying to revolve her situation in her own mind and make sense of it. But she said, You know, why is it, why do we all spend all our time as women um, looking at life through half closed eyes, trying to kind of make it look all right when we know it isn't? and I thought, I mean, the, the, one of the many very sad things about her letters is that she was so extraordinarily perceptive. But once she was involved with Augustus and all these babies, um, the the world that had attracted her, the world of art and um, Paris and the Belle Epoque and all of that, mm. she was looking at it through plate glass. And Absolutely. she could never get at it. Absolutely. And what is interesting
2: about that is that, Antonia White's second novel, Beyond the Glass, has that exactly same image of the glass panel that you can't get through. You see life out there, but you can't get through it. And I think that's a great image for for these women who are liberated in a certain way.
1: Yes. But that's all. Well, it, in a way, it was more cruel um, and more tantalising to get mm. a certain mm. way uh, and then discover too late um, mm. that there was no further path but I'm interested by the fact that still um, Augustus John you can admire someone's art and not their character and vice versa but there is still a great cult of Augustus John as a figure more so I think than as an artist and yet I found by the time I'd finished reading Ida's letters I was ready to go and dig him up that bastard yes
2: I think that it will be impossible to read that particular book and feel about him in any other way uh, um, because the I thought the other thing about that book was the loss of Ida was a seriously great loss. I don't think the loss of Dorelia would have been a great loss. I'm sure she was remarkable and all that stuff. But there's something about Ida that was very special and I felt so when I first came across her a good 10 years ago. I really feel she was quite an exceptional woman and I also rather liked the fact that she didn't really like being a mother but
1: her womb just sort of forced her into it year after year after year well she's it's, her attitude to the children is absolutely extraordinary because in I mean, the first one um when the first one was on its way and she writes to her mother and says well will the thing need to wear something different at night i mean Ooh. this is you know even before the first one's arrived and then you think well maybe she'll change and she doesn't no i've i found it um her thoughts about her situation and the world very interesting and very sophisticated and you're reading it and you then you think well she's only 28 she's only 29 so I agree that it would have been a great loss but um of course she was stuck she couldn't go Mm. back and the fact that after her death her two sisters lived on neither of them ever married um for, for which in the book um Ida is blamed because she so tarnished the family reputation that no one would touch the sisters. Um, but they never spoke about her either, and none of her children spoke about her.
2: That, I think, is heartbreaking. But Augustus didn't speak about her in his memoir. No. Well, see, I think it really does change one's vision. The The, the, Ida, Net, the Ida book, which you reviewed, certainly changed my view of Augustus, which had been more benevolent because I'd read so much about him. And of course, he did have many other sides to him. And I did think he was a tedious man. But I, I was very fond of his paintings, actually. And he led a rambustious and extraordinary life. And of course, his sister was a better painter, but he thought she was as well.
1: Well, he's, uh, yes. I mean, he's always credited with saying that. When you read that remark in context, it's, it has a little bit of kind of... <coughs> Does it? ...backblow to it. I mean, I'm not sure. I, he thought it would be a very amusing thing to say rather than actually the literal truth. Oh. Um, maybe I should be giving him the benefit of the doubt, but he's well, too it's much benefit too to
2: doubt. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, I think it's difficult.
1: But to, and so to come, I mean, this brings us to the subject of what you call poltroonish, I think Paul Trunish is a great word. I think it's probably your word. Uh, you've invented it. But um, when you got into a lot of trouble uh, in the uh, Philip Roth, over Philip Roth, one of the things that was before you tell us what happened. Mm. Um, I thought it was very interesting when you talked about reading his work um, and not only um, hearing the swish of the Emperor's New Clothes, but saying that yeah, how he took a great canvas and did very little on it. Yes. In the absolute obverse of Jane mm. Austen, who takes a tiny mm. canvas and does everything in it. So what happened? Well, um,
2: we had to judge uh, international writing and because I am a convent schoolgirl, I read writing from all around the world. I fell madly in love with Chinese writers. I couldn't, and I had a, you know, we, we all got together every now and then choosing what we could. And when we got to the final judging, there wasn't any discussion. They just said Philip Roth. And I nearly fell off my stool because the thing I did wrong about Philip Roth, I'd read obviously about three or four, but I hadn't read the entire work. And to because he was on the short list you know the the boys put him on there I read it all I don't think it's fair to Philip Roth to have read 20 novels in one year which is what I did but I was absolutely astonished at the boredom level of Philip Roth if you and that's what I mean about the there's an enormous amount of it and very little comes out at the end except much the same thing And, and I used that frightful Australian analogy again which I'd also used about Salman Rushdie's later books, later writers, is the writer is sitting on your face as if he's like a pillow suffocating you, you know. That's what I felt about Philoroth. So the day dawns of the judging, and we get in, and I wanted to make a great play for this Chinese writer who came from Shanghai. (laughs) Can you believe it? Honestly, I'm so naive. And um, there wasn't any discussion. They just said, there's three judges... They said but how can there be
1: no discussion if you're there was the no
2: discussion? So I said, I simply can't accept this. I said, There's absolutely no way. I'm, I'd be utterly ashamed to have done all this work and then choose Philip Roth. And I think I probably shrieked with laughter. And there, there was no laughter in the room at all. And uh, that was what happened. And then, what I thought was much more interesting than that, much more painful to me, I cannot tell you the vitriol that was poured upon me by all. They were all male journalists, but they all saw me as a feminist who had this view of Philip Roth, whereas really they completely ignored my life in literature. By that time, I was 70 years old and I'd devoted my entire life to literature and I no more saw Philip Roth as a feminist. In fact, I didn't even know that feminists disliked him. That just shows no, you
1: No, how- well, it was a literary critical judgment.
2: Absolutely,
1: absolutely. and
2: But also boredom, you know, I well, did find. Bolden
1: him was a very powerful critical Absolutely.
2: Indicator. I really felt that you couldn't say it. he was the world's greatest writer from all around the world. Anyway, this was the Man Booker International Prize, you see. And so I'd read, I even read a most wonderful novel by someone from Sri Lanka about cricket, because I love cricket. But it was just a brilliant novel, but there was no way I could put that on the shortlist with these two macho men <laughs> who wanted people like Philip Roth. But you know, it was meant to be international. Anyway, the disaster was so great that Man Booker changed the rules after that. And they don't ever anymore have three judges, but so you can have two to one, they have five. And they don't have American um, judges much. I don't think they have any American judges because, you see, it was always given to Americans or Canadians or something like that. That whole world view of the world is... Completely controlled by Anglo-Saxons has always been very, very repellent to me.
1: Don't like it. I don't think the world is Anglo-Saxon. No, it most certainly isn't. Mm. Um, But we have a very poor record of translating. We do. And we pay translators very badly. They're doing better now because now
2: the Man Booker International gives the prize. I think the money is divided between the writer and the translator. And they're all doing that now much more, which is right. Because the joys of reading novels from other countries is exactly the same as my Virago modern classics. If you read a whole lot of Chinese novels, you learn more history than you ever learn about what life was like under Mao. Yeah. You know, I was riveted, absolutely loved it. What they said about these translations to me, the boys, the two men, they said, but, the, you know, you feel the author's voice is muffled. So I don't find them muffled at all. I can read through a translation. You know, you just, there's the translation like a, 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 a gauze, you know, and you can see the genius behind a translation,
1: I think. But to keep with the slightly uh, fraught subject of prizes, yeah. what about women's prizes?
2: Hmm. Um, I'm not pro or con. I never had much to do with the Orange Prize, and I'm not hostile to it, and I don't mind. I mean, I, I did, I do know a lot of women mind, you know. Um, I know Antonia Bart, for example, wouldn't want to be chosen all at the time. I think she said that. Um, I think all prizes are a thunder of spore, frankly. <laughs> um, and I think they, they're supposed to have done literature a lot of good, but I think they've been vulgarised in a way that... Um, It's like literary festivals. There's too many literary festivals and too many prizes for me.
1: Well, the literary festivals have become quite industrial um, in some cases.
2: Industrial promotion. What do you think about prizes? I find them of no interest whatsoever.
1: I find them of no interest whatsoever unless I win one and then I think it's (laughs) a a brilliant idea. Um, Really? Yes. Uh,
2: Which one did you win? Remind me, Samuel Johnson or something. No,
1: no, I didn't win that. I won the Wolfson History Prize. Well done. And I won the um, James Tate Black Award. Well,
2: Rosemary, I mean, if I'd probably... No, I don't think... The Wolfson Prize would be a fine prize to win.
1: Yes, it's a very fine prize to win. And I'm
2: sure the James Tate too. But I think I'm probably thinking about the, the Booker Prize and that... I'll tell you what it is. The media have hooked on to the... It's a celebrity prize now, you know. Well,
1: absolutely, it's a celebrity yeah, that, that prize. That I think is what I'm. But I, and I think there is that interesting way in which actually the part of the reason I'm sure that literary festivals became popular is because people are sick and tired of being patronised too much by newspapers and mm. by television. So they go for, for something more intelligent, which then attracts the numbers, which encourages everyone to come in and vulgarise it, commercialise it again. Yes. Um, so it's a bit of a, a, of a vicious circle. But I'm interested in the way in which women are now doing all you know, so it's, Don't be so pessimistic. Everything is much better for women than it was in 1960. But the ways in which this is expressed um, are quite curious. There's a women's prize, which people debate about. At the moment, there's this big... We're trying to be made to argue about statue of Millicent Fawcett or a statue of Christabel Pankhurst.
2: Well, there's no question what historically is the correct one, which is Millicent Fawcett.
1: Christabel well, she's Pankhurst. getting a statue, but does it? Is it okay if it's an absolutely terrible statue? Certainly not. Who says it's going to be awful? I didn't know that it was going well, to be. Well, it's a matter of um, aesthetic judgment, but I mean, I have to say the pictures look pretty frightful. Because Really? Was, was Christabel going to be a better statue? No, well, no. What you need is a better sculptor.
2: Well, I, I I'm, didn't know enough about it. I did know about the battle. And I think Rachel Holmes, who's, who wrote the biography of Tussie Marks and is writing about Sylvia Pankhurst, Who's a most remarkable biographer and has an original mind. Um,
1: I suppose I felt geez. rather disappointed that it had to be a battle between the two. Like if you know, you can okay, you can have a statue that. of one suffragette, but only one. So which one? So then you well, set I them against each saying, other. Yes. I mean, why not? I mean, look at all the, the men
2: on plinths everywhere. It's such a good point. Uh, two of them would have been very good, but I wouldn't have chosen Christabel. It must have been Sylvia and Millicent. Or, or Emmeline,
1: and, but not Well, Emmeline, of course, has a wonderful statue. I mean, part of the problem with statues um, is that we're not good at them anymore. Aren't we? No. See, well, you're, you're
2: architecturally um, more on the vive than me. I wouldn't look at a statue in a thousand years. I look at war memorials.
1: Well, you can't miss the one at King's Cross. I've missed it. Well, it is, can't, it's about 30 feet high. Where is it? <laughs> it's on the concourse in front of the clock, and it's this giant couple saying goodbye to each other. Oh, I've seen that. Well, there you are, you see, I told you you had. What that's not a man
2: in Pankers.
1: No, of course it isn't. Oh, I see. <laughs> You're just saying that you don't look at any sculptures. Well, how could you miss that one? Well, that's what I said to you. <laughs> I didn't make a or of tale of it. No, but, I mean, I think you can think it's not very good. Or oh, you don't have to think that. Well, I
2: think I'm too small to have seen the top of it.
1: Well, I agree. I suffer from the same. I, I, I sort of
2: went like that. Yes. It's outside Carluchos, isn't it?
1: That's right, yes.
2: I yeah. certainly saw the lower. But if you're five feet two. and Which I have, am. Well, I was five foot two, but I've sunk into my pelvis. is what happens to you in old age, and I'm now five foot one. <laughs> You've got that to look forward to as well. <laughs> um, I, I could,
1: I could like that and on. Well, I still maintain that we should have more statues of women if we're going to have more statues at all, but better statues.
2: Funny enough, this is the second argument about statues I've had this week because yesterday I had lunch with Christopher Hobie's written a novel about statues and it's based on this whole, whose statues do you pull down? So we had a wonderful conversation about who you'd pull down and I said the only person I seriously would pull down that I can come bring to mind is Cecil Rhodes. I mean, I think... The British Empire, no. But most of them, I think, should just stay there. And then you could put a little tag on them saying unacceptable, uh, unacceptable um, something or other of the British Empire. But Cecil Rhodes is even beyond that.
1: Exactly. Otherwise, think,
2: they should leave them. What's your view? Uh,
1: well, I think there's a danger that um, if you pull down the statue because you disapprove and dislike what the person represented, you there's a temptation to think you've sorted it out. And there is a real conflict, I think, between um, somebody who accepts the money from the Rhodes Scholarship and then wants to take the statue down. I think if you really want to, I mean, the Germans, we were talking earlier about Germany and what the Germans have done with guilt. And they have been incredibly imaginative about not knocking things down. Um, mm. Apart from the bunker, which is different thing, but I mean, rehabilitating buildings, rehabilitating imagery to some extent, and saying, "Well, if you just leave it as evil, it remains evil, and the evil remains. You have to do something with it. You have to take this sin, this guilt, this violation. Well, I think that's a very and Turn good it point. to advantage. But what could you do with?" the Cecil Rhodes statue to
2: make it to, it to your advantage?
1: Well, I don't think you can do anything directly with the statue. I would severely leave it alone. But as I say, I think that the worry about getting rid of Rhodes is that you think that um, you get rid of the attitudes that you and I dislike in Rhodes. Whereas actually, I think at the well, moment... I think
2: it gives actions more than his attitudes.
1: Well, the attitudes lead to the actions. They and do, at the moment, they? all the mm. things you're feeling pessimistic about, I suspect... They're particularly depressing because you think that there's this kind of rising tide which will spill over eventually beyond um, headlines and demonstrations into some kind of violence.
2: I'm not sure that I think that, but I I don't think that, Regina. What I actually think is this country is ruled by a caste system that is like iron. That's what depresses me. Nothing ever changes, there's always that particular class of British person at the top, bit of change, not much, and everybody else at the bottom.
1: Do you not think it was different in the, I mean, people hold up the post-war years as a kind of ideal time Mm. and grammar school boys got into Oxford and everybody had an opportunity. Do you not think there was any more social mobility there? Oh, I I do. Well, it hasn't really always been entirely the same, though.
2: That was a, as we were talk, talking earlier, that was a hundred years since the Chartists proposed the sort of society that came in after the Second World War. And I think we're right in saying the last march, the last petition was 1848, so the really, the synchronicity is amazing, it was 100 years. And it's not, I'm not saying everything to do with the welfare state was perfect or anything, but the opportunity it gave people. And I always remember, funnily enough, Angela Carter, who absolutely. Indoctrinated me in what I've just said. You know, she was a complete believer in the post-war yes. social arrangement of people in this country. Most particularly, the education they got through the Butler Act. Yeah, um, which of course was an amazing thing, and it's that approach that I think's disappeared because it's certainly a revolution of our education system would make an enormous difference in this country, and they never even consider it, do they? No. Not even considered.
1: Hmm. Um, Well, thank you, Carmen. Um, I'm sorry about your pessimism. I remain convinced that things are better for women in many ways, Um, and not least thanks to you.
2: (laughs) I think they are better for women, no question. And that's something.
0: The LRB Podcast is sponsored by Art and Ideas a podcast series featuring J. Paul Getty Trust President Jim Cuneau in conversation with artists, writers, curators and scholars. In the latest episode, Ankar Mulstein, author of The Pen and the Brush, How Passion for Art Shaped 19th Century French Novels, discusses the symbiotic relationship between authors and artists in 19th century France. Search Getty Art and Ideas on Apple Podcasts, Google Play or other podcast sources.